This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, John, can you share another story, maybe one that was sort of passed down from generation to generation while you were uh, visiting the Great Bear Rainforest? Yeah, the uh, I was in, I believe it was Bella Coola, which is a Newhawk First Nation community, um, it's on the inside coast, which is which is Bella Coola is is. Let me just preface this really quickly by saying that Bella Coola is generally considered to be a, a kind of the mecca of of Sasquatch in the Great Barrier Rift, and perhaps even in the whole BC coast. It, it's an area of tremendous mountains, huge, huge valleys, and um, the Sasquatches there are reported to be you know everywhere and seen all the time, and so. I was speaking with a carver who lives in the community who uh, he was, I think he might have been in his 70s when I met him several years ago and who who had a lot of uh, part of a really big family, a lot of history in his family. And he he spoke about, I think it was his uncle who had been um, out with with a buddy of his fishing and they had, I guess, pulled pulled uh, ashore to, I guess, uh, spend some time and eat lunch uh, on shore. And I think the uncle got up to go and, like, I guess, you know, take a leak or something or whatever. And so when he dropped his pants, he, like, looked through the bushes and there was this huge Sasquatch looking at him. And it was, like, literally 10 feet away. So the, the thing the thing that had happened was he'd, he'd wandered off to, you know, to relieve himself. But uh, he had, you know, without knowing it, walked right towards a Sasquatch that was there, you know, in, in the trees, probably staring at them, watching them for as long as they had, you know, had come ashore, essentially. And he basically, like, turned around, ran, you know, ran off towards the boat, trying to pull his pants up and everything. And then he wasn't able to speak. And then his friend was like, what's going on? And waved them over to the boat and then they end up you know taking off and those tend to be the, the these tend to be the stories it's like these close these very very short encounters uh that don't last very long and uh you know both the sasquatch and the humans involved the people who see them uh tend to be stunned for a period of time and it's it's yeah it's this kind of these 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 moments of almost trauma it would seem. I, I can imagine it would be very traumatic. Yeah. Uh, have, have have the communities up there, have they embraced uh, Bigfoot in, or Sasquatch in the way, let's say, Roswell, New Mexico has embraced that whole phenomena with museums or at least, you know, they're they're proud of it. You know, do you, you welcome to Sasquatch country signs or anything like that? No, you don't. You don't really get a lot of that up where I was traveling on the coast. And in fact, it's it's a little more the opposite. It's a it's more low key. Uh, because it's cultural, there is a bit of a of a sacredness um, attached to the subject, and not really much attempt to to cash in on it. And uh, I mean, but in contrast, if you go to Harrison Hot Springs, 
which is, you know, 90 minutes east of Vancouver, which is where, you know, J.W. Burns, this teacher guy who we were just talking about earlier, uh, you know, coined this anglicized version of, of, of the native word there in Sasquatch. That community has embraced that whole thing and tourism board promotes it. There are statues everywhere. There are these sort of painted footprints and and there is some degree of uh, cooperation or collusion with the the local uh, First Nation there. They put on a, a, a kind of a, a festival called, you know, I, I think it's Sasquatch Days once a, once a summer and, and where they do Sasquatch dances and picnics and sort of outdoor stuff. And so so you do find that 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 ritualistic celebratory um you know, quasi-commercial aspect to it there. Um, I think partly because the uh, the town is is you know located off of the highway, and there are tourists in, in the area, and tourists go there anyway for the hot springs. So, but no, on the central and north coast of BC, it's it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more low key among the residents. There is a lot of banter and talk of Sasquatch informally, but no attempt to monetize it. And talk to me about the sacred nature of, of Sasquatch to them. Why they, they, they look uh, at Sasquatch as a sacred creature. Well, again, for those who do subscribe to uh, their local variation of Sasquatch to those people in those nations, um, many of them do consider them to be spiritual beings and beings who, you know, Depending on the person, depending on the First Nation, depending on the creature, can be either benevolent, uh, good natured generally, or malevolent. And so, I mean, I think you know, in 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 Bella, in the town of Bella Bella, I tended to hear more stories generally of the Sasquatch being, you know, um, a nature being uh, who is a custodian of the wild places and and and. A creature that you know appears to you when there is something to be conveyed to you, a message for you to learn. Maybe you're struggling with something, and and seeing a Sasquatch somehow um, is an indication. It, it, it acts as a herald almost. But you know, in Bellacula, I found uh, gen- again, generally speaking, there are exceptions that the creatures are seen more as uh, beings to be fearful of, beings who can perhaps curse you or paralyze you or even through their gaze instigate death. They're, 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 they're almost taboo. They're things to avoid. And that's not to say that the creatures are necessarily evil or seen as evil. It's just that maybe humans aren't meant to come across them and it's something to be avoided and something that is, that is unfortunately to a lot of people, they're worthy of uh, a terrible fate. And so there, those things constitute a kind of sacredness i would say sure something you know in in the sense of that in the sense of the creature not being something uh to be trifled with right right this is not uh, kitsch this is uh yeah yeah, this is serious business it's it's serious business exactly are there any stories legends about individuals being carried off uh i mean i think there is a story it might have been up in the northwest territories or someplace about I think there was a Canadian version of a, you know, the prospector story of someone who claimed he was kidnapped. Are there any stories like that in the Great Bear Rainforest? Well, I mean, you 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 hear apocryphal stories that 
are not really attributed to anyone in particular, but you hear s- things about how way back, maybe a century ago or over a century ago, something had happened to somebody. I, I think there, one story, again, in, in the Newhawk uh, territory that I'd heard involved uh, a hunter who had been, he'd been, I guess, on his fishing boat and he traveled to a remote inlet and and got I guess captured by a Sasquatch that had wrapped him up in cedar bark and had I guess like wrapped him in such a way like he, he'd taken the guy and wrapped the cedar bark around him by while pressing him against a tree or something and so you do hear hear these like vague stories um in in Wicano, further south uh there was a story about these guys from the village who'd gone to a remote valley and uh, they never came back. And then when they went to send people to find them, they found their bodies missing without their heads and stuff. There is lore, but it tends to be fairly remote in time and ambiguous and not necessarily involving anybody, um, any specific person in the community in particular. And while you were there, uh, were the reports of a, a recent sighting or even a sighting while you were while you were present not necessarily in the exact location but while you were in the in the vicinity no well i guess it depends how recent so um on my first trip there which was which was this was prior to working on the book it was it was the trip that had convinced me that i should work on a book stuff had been happening you know weeks days and even months a few months before i had arrived and so yeah there were loads of loads of sightings you know sasquatches coming into town in the middle of the night banging on people's you know walls of their homes um rock throwing incidents i mean basically the whole gamut uh, that 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 year was was full of reports and then when i went back the following year to write the book i had come across in Klemtu, it was it was these construction worker guys who were from the lower mainland of BC, and they were living in a in a trailer there, you know, building new new homes for the community. And um, it, they were asking me what I was doing there. I didn't actually solicit them for any information. They were like, "Hey, what are you doing here?" I'm like, "Hey, I'm you know working on a travel memoir about the Sasquatch." And they're like, "You know, funny you should mention that. Like just the other night, we were in our trailer, and I'm a hunter, and you know my buddy here's a hunter too. And there's this thing screaming on the mountaintop. It was like." You've never heard anything like that before. And so there were a couple on the return trip, but it wasn't as the, the reports were not as numerous. And, and the locals there will tell you that these that 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 incidents tend to come in waves. And I think my initial trip prior to my book trip was at the tail end of one of those waves. And then when I went back, things had started to quiet down a little bit. All right, we'll take another time out and uh, we'll come back and talk about uh, your encounter, not with uh, a Sasquatch, but a Sasquatch researcher in the valleys of the noble beyond in search of the Sasquatch. My conversation with author John Zada continues right after this on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Zada stays with us, the author of In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. Uh, so tell me about Dr. John Bindernagel, the late Dr. John uh, Bindernagel, how you, you met with him and tell us a little bit about him. 
So John was a wildlife biologist uh, who lived on Vancouver Island in the town of Courtney. He's from, you know, Guelph, Ontario originally. And he's essentially a scientist who became interested in the Sasquatch from an early age. He was, he was an undergrad at uh, you know, the University of Guelph studying wildlife management. While he was there, he came across an article in a magazine uh, about the creatures, and he, you know, he brought the subject up in class uh, to his professor, and his professor ridiculed him in front of all of the other students and really embarrassed him and upset him. And then John decided from that moment forward he would, he would find the truth of, you know, he, he would go in search of the truth of this whole matter. And it stuck with him his whole life. And, and you know, what, what made John, you know, interesting was that he, well, one, he, he, he believed that the Sasquatch was an ape. It was a, it was a, he called it North America's great ape. He wrote a book about it. And he, you know, he did a bunch of research and discovered that or, or you know, or noticed that a lot of the behavioral attributes of the Sasquatch coincided a lot exactly with those of the great apes and and monkeys and and whatnot and and that was you know the thesis of his book and he he was he was on a crusade to convince his scientific colleagues to convince the public that at the very least this was a subject worthy of further scientific exploration i mean he didn't expect you know people to be converted to his position but he it it it, it disappointed him to no end that his colleagues and the general public poo-pooed the subject. And that, you know, I reached out to him when I, you know, um, when I was going to do my trip to the Great Bear to stop there and Courtney to, to meet with him. And I spent time with him and, and, and got to hear a lot of his stories about, you know, um, his evolution as a Sasquatch researcher, the work he had done, and um, the problems, the professional problems that he faced trying to, bring this to the attention of his scientific colleagues whom he considered to not be interested because they didn't really know about it. Right, right. And you met him towards, I guess, right near the very end of his life. He passed away in 2018, I think. Yeah. Um, There... Was he... Was he... I mean, towards the end of his life, was he... Was he uh, sad that you know, that he hadn't discovered the truth about Sasquatch, you know, the habeas corpus, you know, there was, no one has ever found a, a body. Was he looking to pass the torch? What was his mood? I think, I think part of the crisis for him of his life was that as, you know, as he got older and older, he, he felt that, you know, he faced the prospect of death without, you know, um, you know, proving it to the world, but also, um, his he was fearful that his work would become eclipsed by this tsunami of material on the internet and you know books, self-published books by non-scientists and 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 you know he he when he got the diagnosis for his cancer, which is which is what which is what you know took his life in the end, he quadrupled his efforts to get his material on the internet and to to document reports and to do more speaking engagements and. It, it, it was an existential crisis for him. And I think, um, I, I, I think, you know, he, he was quite, he was quite stoic about it at the same time, but I don't know, he, there was a kind of almost emergency in his own mind of, of, 
you know, if I don't get if I don't get a certain amount of work done in a certain amount of way in a certain way, um, then it will all have been for naught. And yeah, I don't know. It depends. You know, his moods shifted. There were moments where he was a bit more circumspect about it and, and calm. But then there were moments when he was just frustrated. And and yes, those last those last years, those last months were 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 um, periods of feverish, feverish work to make sure that there was some kind of a legacy. Did he have any advice for, for you? Well, no, he, I think he was appreciative that, you know, I was contributing something. And, and, and also he was a bit envious because he couldn't get away to the central and north coast as often as he wanted to. The place where I went to, the Great Bear, even though it was very close to where he lives, it's kind of ironic. I'm from Toronto. It's like 10 times the distance for me to, to go there. But um, um, I think I think I think he was happy that I would check in with him from time to time. I did stay in touch with him after you know, the initial trip for the book and everything and, and, and did often tell him, I said, John, man, like, you know, um, science and discoveries and, and, and it's, it's a collective effort. And just because you're not the guy to have made, you know, the, 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 the final call on this doesn't mean that you did not contribute to the overall effort. And I think he appreciated that. Right. Uh, it's like, it was that old saying, was it Voltaire? If I have seen further, it's because I've stood on the, the shoulders of giants. <laughs> Right. All, All right. right. We'll, uh, uh, we'll take another time out. Come back. One segment remains with John Zada, the author of In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. We are into the home stretch with John Zada. Uh, we're talking Sasquatch and his new book, In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. We were talking about the late Dr. John Bindernagel. Uh, just one more uh, thing I wanted to address before we move on, and that is this story that uh, shortly before his death, I'm not sure, sure the timing of it, but shortly before it's de- his death, it is uh, alleged that he was taken by someone to see a dying Sasquatch that was called Fox. Are you familiar with your story and uh, with that story? And what are your thoughts? No, actually, I I don't know that that story. I know that he had in his you know time as a researcher found tracks. I know that um, he I think traveled to Kentucky to a habituation site there and had he thinks maybe had glimpsed the sasquatch so i mean my latest knowledge w- was that he had come close but um he didn't know he didn't actually share that story with me where, where where did you find that uh it was i just i, I was doing a search on uh, dr Bindernagel. uh i'll have to it's just i scribbled it in my notes but i'll have to look back uh i googled it <laughs> basically i i know i know i know i mean it's possible i know that he had i mean he he was really very well liked really popular guy had a lot of contacts across north america john didn't just focus his researches uh, on bc and so um and i know that he had traveled to a lot of different places and was shown a lot of uh you know evidence in, in, in regional parts of North America. So it's, 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 you know, it's not impossible that somebody may have, may have actually, you know, called him over to, to see something in some place. I, uh, I have, I have the name Sally Ramey or Ramey written mm. uh, here in the notes, uh, like a fellow researcher that apparently went with right. him. So okay. uh, who knows? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I didn't, I didn't hear that story. Uh, share another story, maybe a, a, a favorite of yours uh, from your encounter with the peoples of uh, Great Bear Rainforest. Well, you know, the, the, I've got another story that I haven't talked about yet, and this one didn't didn't really make it into the book. So many stories didn't make it into the book because I, you know, there isn't enough. Uh, room and also my book deals with a lot of other subjects, but um, I, you know, and this one I'm about to relate isn't isn't a favorite of mine so much because of um, the, the 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 amazingness of the encounter or the alleged encounter, but just just um, more of an example of just how casual uh, these encounters can be. And so I I was in. Uh, on a place called Denny Island at the the pub there having a meal. And um, across from my table was a fisherman. There were a lot of commercial fishermen who go up there in the summertime to fish during the windows there that, that come up for a few days at a time. And, and um, he had overheard my conversation about my research for the book. And he proceeded to tell me that he had his own, what he believed to be a Sasquatch story of his own. And, and, you know, he basically stopped eating and just, you know, turned around and, and told me how how him and another fishing colleague, and he said, I think this was back, might have been in the 90s, late 90s or the early 2000s. He was on the North Coast, north of where I was at the time on Denny Island. He was off of an island called Renison Island, um, closer to pr- uh, a town or called Prince Rupert. And he was anchored for the night uh right off a tiny little islet, which is off of Renison Island. And him and his colleague were, his pal, I guess, they were fishing, they were asleep. And they said that they were woken up by what he said sounded like uh, a huge person, like a person with huge lungs, retching and throwing up and coughing. Something was sick in the bush just a short distance away on this islet. And it was pitch black. They couldn't see anything. But this thing that like for like 10 minutes was like coughing and barfing and retching. And they said that they were that they were completely, completely afraid, um, not only because they were in the middle of nowhere, but that this thing, whatever it was, sounded like it sounded like a like a person, like a person breathing, a person coughing. It, it, it didn't sound like uh, like an animal. And so they basically pulled anchor and and you know, left. And, and so, um, when I, when I told some people on, on Denny Island about the story, like, like later that afternoon or the next day, uh, you know, about this fisherman guy, well, you know, they said to me, Oh, you know, like maybe that maybe the guy that they heard was people, you know, on Denny Island, it's, it's a non-indigenous community. And, and so there's a lot less belief of the Sasquatch are, even though they're right next to Bella Bella and there's loads of Sasquatch reports there, but the, but you know the non-native people were like, well, maybe maybe those fishermen guys heard heard kayak Bill being sick, and I'm and I'm like, well, who's this kayak, kayak Bill? Bill? And, and and apparently there was there was a guy who used to live in the community there, uh, you know, a non-native guy who uh, used to sell, you know, he was kind of a watercolorist or a painter by winter, and then in the summer he would kayak alone. He was kind of this hermit guy who would kayak alone on the north coast. He would. He built all these different shacks on these little islands on the north coast, and he would spend his summers kind of as a hermit kayaking and then come back and begin the year again by selling his paintings. And then he, he vanished one day, never came back. Um, no one knew, knows what exactly happened to him. So 
I kind of found that to be a really, really beautiful encapsulation of life on the coast. You've got all this, you know, you know, dead serious Sasquatch lore, and then you've got these stories of characters, and and it's just, I mean, it's just, and it also goes to show it's a little bit of an object lesson too in terms of the whole conundrum of like the conundrum of like you know what is the sasquatch is the sasquatch really a creature or is it is is it is it something that we 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 misperceive and and i mean it's all sort of built into that story there right right uh yeah just so many wonderful uh legends and and stories up there uh you know it, it harkens back to the to yesteryear when that was our entertainment, really. We were sitting around a fire and sharing all of these stories, whether it was Sasquatch or what, whether it was, you know, uh, the kayak bill. Um, right. <laughs> um, and did you go out there basically to simply to speak to people or were you was there any interest on your part sort of getting out and, and doing a little field research for yourself in hopes of catching a glimpse? Did, did someone take you to a spot where Bigfoot had f- frequented? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, they, those two motives went hand in hand. I mean, I felt that there, there in the towns there would be the, the tales, but then you know, it's it's funny when you spend time in a given community, it doesn't matter which one, and you and you hear repeatedly stories over and over again. They will, those stories will adhere to certain places, and you hear the names of these, of these, you know, creek systems, these rivers, these bays. They come up over and over and over again you know, old village sites. And so what ends up happening is, um, you know, I, I didn't have my own transportation there, but everybody who lives in the towns, they do, right? They've got their own boats. That, that's that's like having cars in the cities, essentially. And so um, at, at every occasion, uh, I, I would ask people if they could take me to where they're going, if they're going, for, if they're going fishing or if they're going to be doing any kind of, you know, there's all sorts of business one can attend to on the coast. So I did hitch a lot of rides and spend time with people and go see spots. And, and you know, it was really interesting. Sometimes I found myself, even by accident, like someone would be like, hey, what are you doing? You want to come for a ride? I go, yeah, and I go with them. And then I would end up in the place where I would discover later or, or at the time that I got there that this is where a Sasquatch came and like visited a bunch of people at the cabin here kind of thing. So, so, so yes, I was really lucky. I did, I, I did manage to make uh, acquaintances and friends, and they were totally cool with me. And they took me out, and I got to actually see a lot of the places that were the venues for the story. So not only did I have the stories, but I also eventually got to have a visual of the place. And then when I would go back and talk to the people later about what happened, I could even talk to them about exactly where stuff happened, and you know, like. Uh, I, I had a I had a visual map in my own mind that that would make the story clearer for me. John, thank you so much for this. I enjoyed spending some time with you. Thanks so much. It was really fun. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. Next week, the great great grandson of the American outlaw Jesse James will be here with an unbelievable tale. Plus, Steve Santini will talk about haunted objects from shipwrecks. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. From Yeti to Nessie. 
Pyramids to Pandemics. All is revealed on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We're back with Cayman Mythwood from Occulticon 2019, coming up September 13, 14, and 15. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and go to the live events and appearances page and click on the link to Occulticon. You can register right there. Uh, I'll be speaking there on uh, Saturday the 14th, but I'll be staying part of the weekend. A great lineup. Hope to see you there. Uh, but Cayman, you have um, um, a lot of strange stuff going on at your house. I wanted to talk to you about this building you live in. How old is it? Uh, great question. Yes, you're absolutely right. I live in the probably the strangest house I've ever lived in in my life. It is absolutely riddled with uh, happenings all the time was built in 1860, and it's a solid stone house, uh, traditional uh, Ontario farmhouse. And uh, we have probably five or six different uh, ghosts or entities that have made appearances at this property. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so tell me about one of the uh, the ghostly denizens of your place. Um, okay. Uh, let, me, let me set up a little bit first about... Uh, the house to help you understand how it all happened. Uh, 1860 was a pretty stellar year historically, and I think it may have had some effect on the house. Uh, that year, Abraham Lincoln was nominated president. The, the repeating rifle was invented. The Pony Express was delivering the mail and the Civil War had just begun. So the whole, uh, uh, the whole world was just changing at that time. It was uh, quite a, an amazing time. We have a ton of ghosts, and I'll try to get through them as quickly as possible and uh, spare you a few of the details. First, we have the lady in the kitchen. Um, she's al uh, always the most seen uh, ghost in the house. She's very detailed. Um, she's wearing uh, period clothes of the time between 1860, 1880, um, which I don't think clothes change much in that time. Um, and but she's very detailed, but you can't quite see her face. Um, she's seen being seen by just about everyone that has the sight that's come into the house. Uh, during the day of my wedding, she actually pulled on my father's hair. Wow! And it turned him white. He he got it scared the wits out of him because he he's a skeptic. He's never had anything happen like that before until a little later. He saw another ghost and he's like, okay, what the heck is this stuff? Who do you think so she I is told, a previous owner? Yeah, I think she lived here. Probably the very, one of the very first owners. Um, but uh, I'd love to get into more of that, but there's so much more to tell you about Richard. Uh, we've got the running man. who's a, looks like a cross country skier who uh, runs at high speed, and uh, this ghost runs from our coach house over to the stone house, and a medium came in and uh, and and said that there was a ghost. Uh, there was a few that they mentioned, but this ghost particular, he said that he thinks that ghost had actually had a farm accident and there was an arm amputation and that they were running back to the house to get help. And they just got lost and uh, and couldn't find their way. And later on, um, that same medium had said that uh, the original person who built the house, their name was Jacobs. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Who knows? And sure enough, a couple months later, with the side of the house, and there's a stone in the side of the wall with the initials RCJ carved into it. 
So uh -huh. that made my uh, hair on my neck go up a little bit. I was like, oh, that's a hit. Confirmation, yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, then there's the ghost in the coach house. Oh, this one's creepy. I'll try to get through it as quick as I can. In the lower bedroom, a lady saw her husband walk down the side of her bed to the bottom of the bed and grabbed her hard by the feet and the ankles and pulled her two to three feet down towards the end of the bed. She screamed and said to him, what the hell are you doing? You know, as one would. And her husband responded, what the hell are you talking about? And that's when she realized that her husband was beside her in bed the whole time. Wow. So, yeah. what, what, so but this, the specter that was pulling her leg looked like her husband? No, uh, it was just a dark, shadowy figure. Oh, a dark, shadowy figure. And, ah. you know, the lights were out. She just saw, because the washrooms are around the other side of the bed, Okay, she just assumed he was coming back. And uh, not the case. <laughs> Does that happen quite frequently to guests? Um, well, yes, but uh, there's a different incidence, but nothing else has happened in that house. Um, there's two houses on the property. Um, so uh, there was also, um, oh, I should tell you about the ghost dog. Uh, standing in the kitchen with my wife enjoying a cup of tea, and suddenly a tennis ball rolled across the floor, like heading towards us. Out of uh, it was like right out of the changeling. You ever seen that? Oh movie? yes, with George C. Scott, the one with the ball. Yes, oh, yes, coming down the, the stairs. One. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite all-time Canadian horror movies, um, and that spooked us right out. And my wife said, "Oh, I'm sure it must have been a ghost puppy." So we've been calling it the ghost dog ever since. So wow. uh, we had a good laugh about that. Um, there's also the girl in the northeast room. Um, so just a little info about me. I snore like a chainsaw. So every <laughs> once in a while, I would end up in the northeast corner spare room. And almost every night, just as I was falling asleep, I would feel the hands of, of a small person running through my hair. Oh, my gosh. Um, like saying, there, there, go to sleep, you know, relax, that right. sort of thing. As if they were trying to soothe me to sleep. Now, are these, is, is it, are they icy fingers or are they warm to the touch? How do they feel? No, there would, actually, there's no, seems to be no temperature at all. It's just almost like an electrostatic that, uh, ah. that almost like you can feel fingers and, and the whole, the hair on my head would like just push aside. And I tried to recreate the feeling and the only way I could do it was by running my fingers through my hair. Interesting. I went, oh, man. And that's when I realized that it was uh, one of the ghosts that the medium had told us about, this young girl who had uh, apparently died in that room at the age of nine and uh, was from the measles or something way back. And no one had ever told her about death is what he said. And she, he said she's trapped there and she thinks that she's just doing what she's supposed to be doing. Amazing. So, uh, Have you ever thought yeah. about having the house exercised or, or helping, not exercise, but maybe helping some of these spirits find their way to the light? Yes, we have. And uh, that's that's coming up uh, very shortly. Another story about that. Um, uh, I'll tell you right now, it's the room we call the haunted guest room, or I call it the Geist room, like <laughs> Poltergeist, right. German for ghost. Um so it's the center room in the stone house, and it's definitely is the most paranormal activity. Um, uh, that room and another room have been exercised, 
but it wasn't until after a few things happened, like this story I'll tell you now. Um, one lady, she says she feels the presence of an old man uh, that would constantly walk across the room and open the closet door. And this happened to her several times. Um, but in the same room, um, uh, another guy was asleep in there. Uh, wo- and he woke up yelling out loud, leave me alone. And he opened his eyes and there coming halfway out of the wall uh, was a ghost of an old man wearing a white tank top style shirt with bald on the top of his head. And the ghost was lingering there to five to 10 seconds before it vanished back into the wall. But the scariest thing that's ever happened so far was the night my friends ran away and never came back to the house ever again. What happened? Well, so basically my two friends, husband and wife sleeping in the, in the Geist room, mm-hmm. uh, suddenly at about five in the morning, the lady wakes up to a terrifying sound of her husband speaking in tongues mm. with a different voice. It wasn't his voice. That's what really freaked her out. She was terrified and she grabbed him by the shirt and tried to wake him up and calling out his name. And the guy wakes up, but is surprised to find that he can't, uh, that he can hear himself talking in a deep guttural voice. He later told me that the feeling uh, in his voice box with his voice box moving without his own doing is what creeped him out the most. I, I'll bet. So he was basically possessed by a spirit. Exactly. Could you oh, imagine? I cannot. <laughs> yeah. Again, Occulticon 2019, coming September 13th, 14th, and 15th. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and go to the live events and appearances page. And uh, the link is right there. You can register, buy tickets. Hope to see you up there. I'll be speaking on the 14th. A great lineup of guests. Cayman Mythwood, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Richard. Have a great night. You too. All the best. In Search of the Sasquatch, coming up. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone listening to this transmission on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto, across Ontario, parts of Quebec, New York State, clear on down to the Carolinas. Howdy to all of you tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey there to our mobile app users, Zoomer Radio and the Conspiracy Show apps. Uh, Those who stream the show at ZoomerRadio.ca and those who stream the show on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. In his first book, The Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch, John Zada details his journeys into the remote Great Bear Rainforest region of British Columbia, where he collected stories of Sasquatch from the First Nation indigenous communities and others. John is a journalist and photographer based in Toronto. He has an interest in adventure travel and remote regions, which have taken him to some far-flung parts of the world. His work has appeared in such publications as The Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Travel and Leisure, BBC, CBC, Al Jazeera, New York Post, Explore, Mazenouve, 
Monte Cristo, the L.A. Review of Books, and Took and Canoe and Canadian Business. John Zada, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, you're a you're a travel writer. You take wonderful photographs. You're a journalist. Did you ever imagine when you started off in your career that the first book, your first book, would be about Sasquatch? Uh, no, I did not have any idea about that. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. I've spent many years abroad working uh, in the Middle East as a journalist, as a documentary filmmaker, uh, a writer, photographer covering, I, I guess, what people would consider to be more serious, newsworthy stories, um, particularly Middle East related stuff like the conflict out there and, and maybe even just also doing some lighter stuff travel pieces and cultural pieces. But no, it never really crossed my mind that it would ever come to that. And I think what had happened was um, I, I'd spent several years living in, you know, in Dubai, in Beirut, in Cairo, working as a freelancer. And I got, I got tired. I got a little bit worn down from all of the, the, the flying and traveling and all of the, the demands of that work. And I came back to Canada and started to do work here. And as I started to travel across the country and see places that I've never seen, and I, I, I became increasingly interested in, in doing Canada-related work. And I think what happened was I just ended up in BC. Uh, an old interest in the Sasquatch drew me partly there, partly for work. And those two things basically came together and I came up with an idea for a book. And why not? I mean, it is part of our of, of Canadian lore, certainly for the Pacific Northwest. I mean, the 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 term Sasquatch, I, I think, was coined by the Salish. Uh, That's right. I know you were north of Vancouver, but where exactly are the Valleys of the Noble Beyond? The title of the book is In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, and that is my coinage. So people don't actually call it that. That title came from a conversation that takes place in the story in which a resident there described the area as the noble beyond, but 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 the actual region is known more as the Great Bear Rainforest, and it is it is an area the size of roughly Ireland. It extends from roughly the northern part of Vancouver Island all the way up to the Alaska Panhandle. So I would say the central and the north coast of British Columbia, and it is the largest intact temperate rainforest in the world it is it is a kind of a shangri-la a mountainous forested essentially rainforest that is that is pristine and and largely unviolated and has over the years um gotten some protection for for the environment there and it you know it, in a way if you could imagine a place where Sasquatches would reside and, and, you know, possibly even be a last holdout for Sasquatches if all other areas of the continent or the world became overrun by civilization, this would be the place. And when I grew up as a kid, I read Sasquatch books at the library when, when I used to go there. And, and a lot of the early research done by Sasquatch, um, I guess, uh, investigators here in Canada tended to focus on that part of British Columbia because there are indigenous communities there. They've got a lot of Sasquatch lore in their culture. And and it was an area of many, many, many reports. And um, I thought it would be really great to go to this wonder of nature, truly a jewel 
uh, in the Earth's crown of, of natural wonders and also do a Sasquatch book at the same time about it. And how, do, how does one get to the, the, uh, the Great Bear Rainforest? By plane or by boat? Yeah, so there is only really one main road that reaches one community in the Great Bear Rainforest, a place called Bella Coola, and you'd have to drive probably about 20 hours or so to get there from, let's say, the lower mainland of British Columbia. But yes, you, you either fly from either Vancouver or uh, Port Hardy on the north tip of Vancouver Island, or you take ferries, um, again, also from Port Hardy, from the north end of the island to the coast. Um, even float planes go there. So it, it, is an, it is a coastal region. It is an area defined primarily through because, by its abundance of water and um, re- remote communities, small communities, some of them fly in, and yes, it, so it, it does. It does take a bit of effort to to get to these places, but when you do get there, it, it's it's quite rewarding. And tell me about the people uh, there. I mentioned Sasquatch is a Salish word, but is it part of the Salish Nation, or who lives on this land? There are a cluster of different First Nations peoples, and I, together they call themselves the Coastal First Nations. I guess that's that's more of a sort of a political alliance, I would say, but. A handful of nations, they're, they're coastal, northwest, indigenous people. They share primarily the same culture. They've been, their settlements have dated back, I think one as old as 14,000 years, but others, you know, 10,000, 11,000 years of age. And they range from anywhere from 1,500 people to maybe 40 people and lots of traditions, lots of stories. Uh, they were uh, hunters. They were people who lived lives based on fishing and you know cedar trees creating products from that they're, they're people of the land essentially and they are still there and have a lot of sasquatch lore in their culture and they give different names for the creatures and so i basically went from community to community spent time there talked to the people heard their stories and uh documented them for the book they're the place in their culture uh spans storytelling so they appear in their tales they're considered real flesh and blood creatures as well. And then, you know, for others, they have a supernatural significance, sort of in the same way that people who have more of a metaphysical take on the Sasquatch see them as, you know, moving between dimensions and dematerializing and appearing and disappearing and that kind of thing. And uh, how easy or difficult was it to get uh, the locals there to open up and share this this knowledge with an outsider. Right. Well, historically, if you go back and look at the old, older research and the older Sasquatch books, like such as John Green's books, who uh, he, he was based out of Harrison Hot Springs in British Columbia, um, they talked a lot about how you know native communities were, 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 were reticent, they were more reluctant to speak, they were fearful of you know being ridiculed. And I think that was not just in part because they're indigenous and they were sort of looked down upon by, by the white men, but also it was a sign of the times. And you go back to the 50s or the 60s or even the 70s, it was a more conservative time. But now with the Internet and reality television and all these shows and finding Bigfoot, and it, it's, the stigma doesn't really exist anymore. And so when I went to these places, I thought, OK, it's going to be a bit tough. Who the hell is this guy coming to the community asking these questions and I thought there'd be a lot more work involved to 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 get people to speak. But in fact, people were really, really, really um, 
enthusiastic about sharing their stories. And I think that's partly also because it's a subject that really excites people up there. And, and the fact that someone from the outside is interested, I think, also um, excited them as well. And have these stories been uh, that you received from them? Were they uh, passed down through the oral tradition, generation to generation, you know, stories maybe around the fireplace or the campfire, uh, a grandfather, a great grandfather saw one in the woods or encountered one? Uh, or, or were you getting also sort of some first person eyewitness testimony? It was all of the above. So they, the stories ranged from, from, you know, old family stories that, uh, were, had some kind of a supernatural element to them to something my grandfather or that my great grandfather or that my cousin or that my uncle has seen or that I've seen. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it was basically everything. And, and, Children in these cultures, generally speaking, tend to um, be told Sasquatch stories, and I'm using the generic term Sasquatch, but it would differ from nation to nation, sort of scare stories to, to keep children in their place and to you know, say that you know, if, if you misbehave, you know, the Junaqua will come and take you and she's going to put you in her basket and go back to her cave and eat you. So a lot of people growing up in these communities tended to learn about these creatures by way of 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 these stories when they were kids and 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 what what that has you know in my view and my experience has tended to do is it's caused a lot of them growing into adults to not believe in the sasquatch but then when if and when they do see one their whole worldview changes so often when someone tells you that they've seen one they'll often preface the tale by saying their their story by saying you know, I never believed in this because I thought it was just a scare story when I was a kid. Could you share one of those stories that you received from, say, a young adult who who was skeptical, thought it was, you know, like the bogeyman? Uh, and, it, you know, then they ended up having their own encounter. Yes. So I traveled to a community called Klemtu, which is a small village of about 500 people on the north coast. It's uh, the the main the primary town of the Kidasu Kheke's First Nation. And I was going for a hike up to a lake above the town. It's also the water reservoir where there's a lot of reports. And as I was coming back down the trail to the town, there's a little salmon hatchery there where they, uh, where they help to support their salmon populations. And I, I, I met a young guy. He might have been in his, he was somewhere in his teens, maybe in his mid, maybe his late teens, who uh, was who works there occasionally and i struck up a conversation with him and he told me that he had had a, he had had his own experience and basically what it had happened i think maybe the year before or the summer before he had been doing an overnight shift at the hatchery it was some kind of a, a job to i guess he was watching over the operations there over the evening and he was sitting at a at a desk by this window and this is in the forest mind you, it's right on the edge of town and he said that at around three in the morning, uh, you know, he looked out the window and there's a little bit of a light out there. And he saw this huge, hairy, muscular creature walk right past him and his view of the window, except he could see only like the body up until maybe the top of the chest. The thing was so massive that its head was above the window and it basically like was tiptoeing and walked right by. Like it was almost as if it were unaware that he was there and it was maybe stealthily approaching the village. 
And I think he got completely freaked out. And then within an, the next minute or two, the thing walked back in the other direction. And so he got so scared, he went and locked himself in the back room and basically stayed there till daylight and then, and then you know, left and told everybody. Uh, and how, how common are these stories uh, among the peoples of the Great Bear Rain- Rainforest? Does, does every family have a, have a story or, I mean, give, it a, give me a sense of how common or rare it is. Well, I would, I would definitely say that because of the cultural tie-in, there is a lot more, there are more stories in these communities than in most, let's say, run-of-the-mill, non-Indigenous, uh, Western or Pacific Northwest towns. Um, having said that, not everybody in these communities believes in them. And I, I did meet a lot of people who spend a lot of time out in the bush, they hunt, they they fish they're 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 really outdoors people and i think that it's par- it's partly a it, an issue of the of the ego in some ways i think that that those who really in those communities don't believe in them uh and perhaps rightly so i mean i i i'm not i'm not so certain that i'm not 100% certain that they exist but they say well if if they do exist uh i would have seen one by now and you hear that from a lot of people you hear, those who don't believe st- basically um, take that position because they feel that if they do exist, then, that they themselves must see them. So, um, yeah, I would, and I can't give you an exact figure of, of the breakdown between, I didn't really take a poll or have any kind of numbers, but I mean, I would say for every, it's probably split half, I would say it's probably about half, half, or maybe, you know, two thirds believing or knowing or having stories and then a, a good solid third at a minimum who are like, no way. And and you mentioned that uh, you know as a as a, a young young man or as a child you you read stories about uh, a Bigfoot. Uh, do you remember which one that sort of initially captured your your imagination? Mm. Well, there is a famous story uh, about um, an incident in 1924 involving a bunch of miners who were prospecting in the Mount St. Helens area of southern Washington state. And they were in an area known as Ape Canyon. I mean, even 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 just the name of the place uh, is is is, you know, um, named after kind of these like monkey ape type creatures. It, it's 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 got this ominous tone to it. They were there prospecting. They were apparently shadowed or stalked by uh, a bunch of Sasquatch. Um, one of them. One of the miners fired on the creatures, and I think it fell into the canyon. And they retreated to their cabin that night or the next night. And and what happened was, while they were at the cabin, they were basically swarmed by this troop or this group of Sasquatch that, over the course of the night, attacked them with rocks and with sticks, and were banging on the walls and jumping up and down on on the roof. It was it was essentially a swarming, and um, afterwards, the, I mean, the attack let up, nothing happened. None of these creatures got into the, not got into the cabin, but when the miners got back to civilization, the newspapers picked up on the story. There was a huge hunt for the creatures. It, it made the papers. And I think, uh, later on when Sasquatch became more of a, of a pop culture thing and, and really hit, hit the news big time after 58 with the discovery of the tracks at Bluff Creek. 
people who were subsequently doing research about these old stories found them in the newspapers. I think it was the Oregonian and then put them in the books. And I think as a kid, like you're reading these books at night, right? And, and mm. you're, you know, here you're hearing about Ape Canyon and creatures attacking the cabin. And like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty frightening story. And this is not supposed to be fictitious. This is like a, a book that is purporting to uh, contain stories that are real life stories. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it does make an impression on you as a kid. Sure, I can see why. You know, as yeah, you say, this yeah. is not uh, this is not comic book fantasy. This is a story that ended up uh, making the newspaper. And uh, did right. you read any of of uh, Burns' uh, early work? Like, you know, there was an article I think in McLean's magazine back in 1929. Although it was published on April Fool's Day, that might have been the the publisher's sort of uh, you know uh, joke. But did you read? burns work as well yeah i i yeah i have i have read some of his pieces including the one that ran on that day that 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 i guess is the one that is most attributed to the coining of the word sasquatch and yeah it's 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 difficult i mean this was back in the 20s and and i think he continued to write a few more pieces into the early 30s he was he was uh either a teacher or a principal or both uh at a school on the native reservation in the area and and it's, you know, the sources are at odds in terms of what his real intentions and take were on on the issue. You have some people who claim that he never really believed in the Sasquatch and was just writing about it just more as a cultural thing and for fun. And then you have others who have said that, you know, no, he was actually really serious and he wanted to protect the creatures. And so, I mean, th- th- these are these are, of course, problems of scholarship and of history when, you know, uh, decades and, you know, almost a century has passed and the person's gone and you can't really, there isn't really much documentation. So I think the jury's out in terms of where he actually stood on it. But yes, his articles are still there. And I, I mean, at the very least, he was, he was interested in some manner. And I guess that must speak to, you know, uh, something within him, within his imagination. All right, we'll take a time out and we'll come back and continue to explore the valleys of the noble beyond in search of the Sasquatch with author John Zada right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Owen Wolf is my technical producer, and Ryan White is the YouTube channel editor-producer. 
A very busy show for you tonight. Uh, In the second hour, John Zada is a journalist, photographer, travel writer, and for his first ever book, he chose to travel to British Columbia's Great Bear Rainforest and write about Bigfoot. And he'll be here to tell us about his travels. He has some amazing stories. Coming up a little later this hour, Cayman Mythwood runs a pretty cool event not far from Toronto, in Gray County, actually. It's called Occulticon, and it's held on a 60-acre campground called Mythwood. And I'll be speaking there. It runs September 13th, 14th, and the 15th. And Cayman will be here to tell us about the lineup of presenters and share some amazing stories about his haunted house. First, tonight, we introduce a brand new feature. The second Sunday of every month, the discoverer of reverse speech, David John Oates, will join us to share some amazing reversals. David stumbled upon reverse speech more than 35 years ago, and he believes it is the speech of the unconscious mind. It can be used therapeutically, but it can also be used as a virtual lie detector. He joins us from his home in Australia. David John Oates, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on the new podcast, Reverse Speech Radio. Thank you. Yes, it's doing very well. We're getting some amazing feedback about it. People are really loving the shows and can't wait for the next one to be downloaded. So it's, 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 it's already beginning to be a huge success, and I think it's just going to grow more and more as time goes on. So for those not familiar, just explain some of the basic principles behind reverse speech, which, which you discovered. Right. Yes. Yes, indeed, I did. It all started for me back in 1983, back in the days of satanic messages in rock and roll. And uh, I started by uh, looking into that out of curiosity's sake, and uh, I could hear the phrases that they were saying were there, and I was just really curious as to what on earth was this. And uh, um, uh, I accidentally stumbled across an inhuman speech um, in 84, and that really uh, put my research into a whole new direction because until I started my work, no one had ever looked at speech. It was all music, you know, satanic messages in rock and roll. And uh, I started researching speech, and I was finding these backward messages once every 20, 30 seconds of speech, quite intelligent phrases, and uh, I was stunned. Uh, And in 87, I wrote my theory of reverse speech, and I basically claimed that language is bi-level, forwards as well as backwards. As the human brain is constructing the sounds of speech, it's putting them together in such a way that we're saying two things at once. One forwards, which is our conscious thoughts and our conscious feelings and thinking, and the other one is in reverse, which is the unconscious mind and its thoughts and its feelings. So I'm basically proposing a whole new linguistic theory. Uh, I claim that this is a natural function of language. Uh, All of us are doing it all the time. When people were hearing satanic messages in rock and roll, uh, well, for a start, there's a whole lot of messages that that aren't satanic. It's just satanic ones that got the publicity. What they were seeing was the very first signs of this dual communication process, and they were seeing it in music. Of course, uh, people being what they are, they all rush inclusion. Oh, this has to be the Satan, you know, who who else is doing it? And then, then I came up with my theory, which 
which I went public with in 87 and uh, got a lot of media coverage in Australia and that uh, got me some coverage in America and then I came and lived in America for 10 years teaching and travelling and lecturing and now I'm back home in Australia still doing the same thing, teaching and travelling and lecturing. So explain how reverse speech can be used as essentially a lie detector. Oh, sure. Well, there's multiple facets to reverse speech. Um, On the surface level, it's a lie detector. Yes, if you are lying forwards, you will get the truth in reverse. Uh, If you are leaving out pertinent facts from your conversation, they too may appear in reverse. It's like the uh, unconscious mind's own truth-telling mechanism. I mean, we all know about body language and how body language can sometimes communicate how we're really feeling. Reverse speech takes body language one step further. Uh, It's got tremendous applications. I mean, the obvious one is law enforcement. Uh, Reversals will tell us whether the person's committed the crime or not. Um, In uh, the few cases I've worked on with the police, in one case in Australia, it revealed the location of a hidden murder weapon, and that was in the cellar of a house. I got a bit of publicity in Australia for that, and uh, in one of the cases I worked on in the Dallas police, it revealed the location of a body, which turned out to be accurate too. So um, um, I do uh, a lot of work. Uh, with uh, companies and employee selection. Um, It's a good way of weeding out your employees who's lying, who's telling the truth, what are their real motives and hidden agenda. So that's on the surface level. It's a truth detector. On deeper levels, which is where I use it primarily in the therapeutic context, it will tell us what's driving us, what is causing our behaviour. If we've got undesirable patterns, reverse suites will tap into what is causing those underlying undesirable patterns. And um, so I I use it a fair bit in therapy. That's, That's really my main business is used in the therapeutic context. So getting back to the the lie detecting aspect of it, this this works because the unconscious mind can't tell a lie. Is that right? Exactly correct. Yeah. We're actually all designed to tell the truth. Um, It's a natural function. And if we don't tell the truth, the unconscious mind will uh, uh, correct what we've said forward and communicate the actual truth of the situation. I'm trying to find a uh, – let me me pull up a a basic lie here that uh, I'll play you an example, okay? So so here we have – Oh, this is a funny one. This is O.J. Simpson when he was uh, uh, released. This is his parole hearing a few a couple of years ago when he was released from jail. So listen to this forwards. Oops, sorry. Hang on. I didn't have my mixer checked. Now we'll do it. Are you humbled by disincarceration? Oh, yes, for sure. As I said, I wish it would have never happened. Uh, I uh, was going to start. I didn't know how we were going to do this uh, by apologizing to the people of Nevada because. Uh, okay, so he asked, "Are you humbled?" He says, "Oh, sure," but backwards he says, "Say lie." See if you can hear this. Say lie. Say lie. Okay. Say lie. Yes. Say lie. So we can <laughs> assume from that that he's not telling a truthful statement. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Here's 
something I've I've asked I've asked you before because uh, yeah. I think it's fascinating. It's it's not just the the combination of letters and phonetic sounds, right? Because if you were to ask that question and someone was being genuine and they would say, "Yes, I am humbled by this." Even though they're, they're using the same letters, the same, it's the same phonetics, the same sounds, you might not get that same reversal. Yes or no? No, you won't get the same reversal. No, reverse speech is really caused by the subtleties of speech. Now, two people can say exactly the same sentence, and but we see we've got different voice tones. We all put our emphasis on different words and different letters, and uh, um, uh, and you can get two completely different reversals. Now in trial tests, we've been able to reproduce reversals by reproducing the speech in exactly the same way it was said. But that's very rare. Uh, in natural conversation, two people rarely say exactly the same thing, exactly the same way. And uh, so that leads to two different reversals. Right, right. Um, now, the CIA, they have yes. acknowledged on, on their website that they, they use this technology for interrogation, correct? Yes, yes, they have. I actually, uh, I actually uh, gave a uh, four-day workshop to the CIA in Washington D.C. back in 1991. Actually, not only the CIA, the FBI, and Secret Service, Naval Intelligence, there was a couple of others there, and uh, uh, they ran off with it and have started their own research into it. So uh, I, I was a little bit put out. I thought they might include me, <laughs> but they didn't seem like they wanted to do that but uh, there's uh, many reports coming out now about the CIA using reverse speech in uh, in various intelligent activities i mean what they how they do it i don't know but if you google reverse speech CIA you'll see the listing on in the CIA webs website so my work has been picked up by some powerful government authorities and uh, and uh, research has proceeded without me we should mention uh, David John Oates here, the discoverer of reverse speech, and he, along with uh, Christian Decadur, are the hosts of Reverse Speech Radio. You can hear these amazing reversals. You can hear politicians and catch them in a lie, uh, climb inside the minds of, of serial killers, uh, other newsmakers, hear their forward speech and then hear the reversals. Uh, it's quite stunning. Uh, and it's, again, Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday, and people can go to reversespeech.ca, uh, and from there they can find the podcast, or they could go to reversespeechradio.libson.com, and Libson is L-I-B. S-Y-N. They're one of the major uh, podcast uh, providers. So again, it's reversespeechradio.libson.com. But maybe easiest just to go to reversespeech.ca and just look for the Reverse Speech Radio button. And again, new episodes every Thursday. You also... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, we cover a variety of topics. We look at current political topics. We look at serial killers. We look at therapy. It's uh, each, each show is different, and it's all very exciting on some new fascinating topic about reverse speech. You're also you're developing an app uh, so that people yep. can capture their own reversals, right? 
Well, we actually have an app out now for both the iPhone and Android. It's a reverse speech. It's called iReverse Speech. You can find it very easily. It uh, runs uh, recordings forwards and backwards and varies the speed. But a uh, program we've got coming out next week we're very excited about. It's a reverse speech, new next generation. It's video reversals when you run videos backwards the uh, backward lip movements mouth out the reversals it's very very stunning to see plus you get direct body language links like an arm movement will go up precise time reversal occurs or a head will twitch and it adds a whole new dimension to reverse speech and you can see that the psyche is communicating through a variety of different methods it's an orchestrator and orchestra of uh, of body movements and lip movements and and and, and backward messages and it's uh, so this new software is coming out next week and it's going to put a whole new whole new spin on re Verse speech, but the apps are out now, both for iPhone and Android. Go and download them and play with them yourself and have some fun. It, it, yes, it could be kind of an interesting party game, but the the idea of being able to interpret, uh, because sometimes you'll get kind of an enigmatic phrase in the reversal, and it's it it, it needs to be sort of deciphered. You, and you've sort of compiled. Uh, what do we call these? Like metaphors or yeah, metaphors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's uh, it was uh, when I first started my research, uh, I was uh, quite perplexed by these metaphors and cryptic references. I mean, a lot of reverse speech will be in metaphor or cryptic type statements, and uh, they require a lot of a lot of understanding. It took me many, many many years to work them out. Um, I've compiled a reverse speech metaphor dictionary, uh, which, you can, which you can get on the reverse speech website that lists the common meanings of all the metaphors. Uh, I believe reverse speech to be a universal language. The uh, meanings of the metaphors are the same from person to person. Uh, I've come to that conclusion after doing it for, well, 35 years now. So, uh, uh, and a lot of our personality and behavioural patterns are described in a metaphorical context. So, uh, uh, so in being a reverse speech analyst and learning how to do this, not only do you have to be able to uh, locate reversals accurately, but you also need to be able to interpret what you find. And are you utilizing Jungian symbology at all with these metaphors? Oh, yeah, very much so. Absolutely. There's a direct connection between the works of Jung and reverse speech. And uh, I was actually, uh, when I was trying to work out what the metaphors were all about back in 87, 88, I was actually referred to the works of Carl Jung. And I started to read his books and I was like, oh, wow, these are the same things I'm finding in reverse speech. Yes, so there's a direct connection. Yes. I'm just imagining, you know, had Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, had they been aware yeah. of reverse speech, I, I bet you would have blown their minds. Oh, that's been said to me a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Carl Jung used to uh, analyze his clients' dreams and it would take him many many years to be able to get a diagnosis 
through dream analysis. I mean, with reverse speech, I can get it in one recording. A 30 or 60-minute recording will give me what I call a metaphorical map or construct of the unconscious mind, which is just really exciting stuff. So so uh, I'm trying to find one of these uh, reversals here. Let me play you a metaphor. So, uh, so uh, this is on me talking to a client. You uh, strike me as a very enthusiastic guy. I mean, certainly the time we've been together and you've got all full of ideas. Um, is this latest, is this just a latest idea? Is it just all froth and barble or do you really want to get out? And backwards, I say, see the wolf fallen in the lake. See the wolf fallen in the lake. See, of course, you'll see how clear that is. Oh, my is. gosh. You can't get any more cryptic than that. <laughs> you certainly can't. You're absolutely right. I, I was finding reversals like this back in my early days, and I'm scratching my – see, see, see I've, got no, uh, I've got no background in psychology or linguistics. Um, you know, I just did high school, and uh, and – to be suddenly confronted with all these metaphors was just overwhelming for me. But as I've since worked out um, over many years, wolf is drive and motivation, lake is emotions. This client I was talking to had just suffered from a, a nervous breakdown and he could no longer get his up and go going to go back to work so when you see see the wolf fall on the lake the translation is i'm no longer motivated because i'm drowning in my own emotions but it took me many years to have interpret reversals in 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 that fashion right right um can you play uh, can you play a reversal that's a congruency and then explain what that means absolutely Okay, this is a classic congruent reversal, and by congruent, I mean it's saying the same thing backwards as it is forwards. So this is Donald Trump, and he's talking about Hillary Clinton's emails back in the election campaign back in 2016, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, when he gave up that email thing, he t he said, here, Hillary. And you know what? That was orchestrated by the Democratic Party. Okay, so we've got two clear phrases, Hillary and email. And we run it in reverse, and we hear him say backwards, Hillary, let's see this email. Hillary, let's see this email. Hillary, let's see this email. Do you hear that one, Cleary? Yes, so, yes. So there we've got Hillary and email forwards and Hillary and email backwards, and he's basically communicated the same thing. We need to see Hillary Clinton's emails, and these emails are a controversy. So that's a congruent reversal, okay? Right. And what's to me, this is, and I've heard enough of these over the years in speaking with you, I've heard enough of these reversals. What is, what convinces me anyway that these are legitimate is, that the reversal, it's not just, you know, oh, he's saying the word cat or he's saying the word duck. It's right. it's in context to what the discussion is about. The right. context is everything. That's a, that's the thing that convinced me in the long run that this was real. I mean, I had my own doubts over it. <laughs> of course I did. But the thing that finally convinced me was a contextual relationship. You didn't find isolated phrases. Like you're not going to hear him saying, you know, I had hamburger at McDonald's if he's talking false about his work, you know, or the pink 
pumpkin road on the blue car. <laughs> you get reversals that are in context and relevant to what's been spoken forwards, and we call that the principle of complementarity. The forward and the reverse relate to each other. And the odds of these occurring, I mean, just see Hillary, let's see this email. I mean, the odds of that occurring, coincidentally, is uncalculable. I mean, you know, <laughs> and and so that's what convinced me was its contextual relationship. We're, we're heading into a break uh, here in about a minute, but um, people can train themselves to to cheat on a uh, like a, a lie detector, galvanic skin response, etc. Is it possible? Let's say, for example, a, a sociopath or a psychopath, can they train the way they talk in order to? Uh, avoid the reversal uh, outing them? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I've looked at psychopaths and serial killers and uh, no, the reversals are always there betraying who they really are. Uh, look, I've, uh, however, let me make one caveat in there. I've actually done some work with hypnosis and I've been able to uh, turn the reversals off so they're not there, but I haven't been able to get them to communicate a lie or to... Uh, or to mislead. You can hypnotize someone so that they no longer they 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 no longer speak with reversals. Absolutely, yes. That's remarkable. I did a well, not not for very long, <laughs> for a few minutes. I did one on me once, and uh, and we found one reversal. The reversal said, "Do not listen to my reversal." <laughs> <laughs> that was. Okay, we'll take a we'll take a, a quick time out. David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech and the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio, back with more of the Conspiracy Show right after this. The truth is not out there; it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are here with David John Oates, the discoverer of Reverse Speech and the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio, uh, which can be heard. Well, it, new episodes drop every Thursday. You can go to reversespeech.ca uh, to, uh, to listen and subscribe, or you can go directly to reversespeechradio.libson.com. Uh, you have another reversal for us. Yeah, well, I played a congruent one on Trump, so let's play an incongruent one on Trump. So uh, here he is. Here he is talking about the border, the border wall, okay, and how he's going to get Mexico to pay for the wall. What's the difference? I want to get the wall started. I don't want to wait a year and a half until I make my deal with Mexico. So, and we probably will have a deal sooner than that. And by the way, Mexico has been so nice. So he's talking about he's going to make his deal with Mexico, but right. backwards he says they will not deal with us. So that's incongruent. Right. And they haven't either. Mexico is certainly not going to be playing, paying for the wall, and the wall itself is even in jeopardy now right, too. Right. Right. Well, not so far. They're not going to pay for it. We'll see. Um, all right. So, do you, in all the years uh, that you've been doing this, what stunned you the most? What What shocked you the most? Oh, what a question. What shocked me the most? I think probably some reversals on the serial killers. I mean, they can be pretty 
pretty nasty reversals. Um, um, like, for example, here, let me let me play one on music. This one shocked me. This is this was ACDC um, uh, Night Prowler that uh, that inspired Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. This is one of these satanic messages. So so let's just this one set my hairs on end. So let's just run it forwards. He says, oh, listen to me. Oh, oops, sorry about that. Hang on. One, are you still there? Yes. Hello? Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry. My cat just walked over <laughs> my mixer. <laughs> okay. And backwards, oh, listen to me. I'm from hell. That uh, put some uh, chills down my spine. Mm. So, how much uh, do you? Uh, how much you. of that, with with particularly with with rock musicians and backward masking and so forth? How much of that do you think they they play around with? Because you know it it's just part of a, a marketing thing. Oh, look, yeah. There's a technique called backward backward masking where they deliberately superimpose records. A lot of bands have done that for marketing purposes, you know, and it, it, it's been a bit of a dig at the fundamentalist Christians who talked about uh, satanic messages so uh, so there's uh, uh, it's not done so much nowadays but back in the uh, back in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s there was bands fiddling with backward messages so one of the things that most amazed me about reverse speech was when you told me that we actually when we learn to speak as as children small children we actually learn to speak backwards first and i Absolutely. thought oh i thought my, to myself oh david come on and then you played me a reversal from your daughter do you have that one at the at the ready i certainly do my favorite program my my favorite topic is is uh, is reverse speech in children and this is this is my daughter at 13 months of age she's in a bathtub and she's trying to pick up a cup she can't pick it up and she reaches out to me for help so here's the forwards <laughs> Backwards, she says, David, help me. You gotta admit that's nice and clear. (laughs) Yes, yeah, play that again. Using my name, using my name. What's remarkable of that is there is no real forward speech. It's just baby babble. It's it's babble. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, let me play, let me play you another stunning one. This is a uh, this is a four month old child, uh, just a normal baby sounds. And uh, um, huh, well, would you blow? I can't. Uh, uh, this is the normal. Ba- oh, here we go. Okay, so here's the forwards. When you run it backwards, you hear the gibberish followed by hello. Oh, <laughs> you hear that right at the end? Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. 
So that's actually another point. That's point three of my theory is that language development begins backwards before it does forwards. Children are first speaking in reverse, and uh, that's when you think about it, it's quite logical because the unconscious mind is evolving first as they are taking their surroundings, and so language develops backwards before it does forwards. Does it work in other languages too? All the languages we've looked at so far, yes, Spanish, German, French, um, um, uh, and uh, they're the ones we've looked at extensively. Um, it's occurring in, in all of those languages. And interestingly enough, the metaphors are the same from language to language. So I think there's a common universal language that the unconscious mind has across cultures and um, and. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, cross cultures. Do you think there'll ever come a time when this is admissible evidence in court? Oh dear, uh, not in my lifetime. Uh, well, look, the lie detector is isn't admissible. Um, I actually personally don't think reverse speech should be admissible in court. I think it should be used as an investigative tool. Um, I don't know. Uh, we'll see what the future holds, but I, I, I certainly don't see it in my lifetime. I do see it being used as an investigative tool to find information that the police need for a conviction. Yes, yes or to indicate, you know, deception, uh, etc. And then, you know, that person, if they know he's being, if they're, if the person being interrogated is being deceptive, then obviously they know they may have their suspect and they can continue to, to probe further. Yeah, let me let let me play this one. I love this reversal. This is this, this talks about the spiritual aspects of reverse speech. This is the spirit speaking to the conscious mind. This is uh, someone who's got money problems and he's uh, looking for some advice. Does it further for us to put more energy and money and <clears throat> effort? And he says backwards. You're frightened. Lean on me. You're frightened. Lean on me. Wow. You're that. Right. Is- now is that for a clear reverse? Oh, that is so clear. That is so yeah. clear. And that's his spirit talking to him, saying, look, I know you're frightened. I know you're upset. Lean on me. Trust in me. And then we get down to the deeper aspects of reverse speech, which is the spirit and the soul. And uh, reverse speech talks about that. Um, talks about the soul and our spirit. We see this constant conversation going backwards where the spirit is giving advice and guidance. And we all know it exists. We all listen, try to tap into that small, still voice within. Well, I believe reverse speech is that small, still voice within. It's a voice of the spirit constantly communicating, giving us advice and guidance, correcting our lies, um, and giving us reasons for behavior that we are running. Um, it's an incredible discovery. I, uh, uh, look, you know, I've been doing it for 35 years now, and I'm just as excited about it now as I was in the day I first started. It's, it, it's just an amazing thing. Well, and now uh, people can sort of uh, join along in this incredible journey of discovery. Every Thursday, a new episode of Reverse Speech Radio. They can go to Reverse Speech .ca, reversespeech.ca, and uh, just uh, scroll down and you'll see a button. Uh, it's an old radio. Click on that and you can listen and subscribe. Again, new episodes every Thursday. David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech, 
along with uh, Christian D. Cadur hosts. David, uh, great talking to you again, and we'll talk again next month. Thank you so much. The organizer of Occulticon 2019 is next when The Conspiracy Show continues. Keeping a watchful eye on the new world order. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. September 13th, 14th, and 15th. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. A terrific convention coming called Occulticon. Occulticon 2019 up in Holstein, Ontario, about 90 minutes northwest of Toronto. I'll be speaking there on Saturday the 14th, but I'll be staying part of the weekend. You can camp, tremendous lineup of speakers, and here to tell us more is the uh, the founder and organizer of Occulticon 2019, Cayman Mythwood. Cayman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks. Great to be back. Tell us a little bit about Mythwood Event Grounds. Mythwood is a, it's like a spiritual campground, and uh, it's the perfect venue because we have a, a stage and big tents and, and uh, lots of camping spaces, lots of places for trailers and so on. It's uh, really spread out in a nice way where we have uh, areas where we can do ceremonies and rituals and other areas that are uh, just quiet little private camping areas and a lake and a pond where you can go swimming. Um, it's probably the most private campground in all of Ontario. It's spectacular. I was there uh, last year. Can't wait to come back this year. And again, I'll be speaking on Saturday, September the 14th. But just to go through the lineup, who else will be appearing at Occulticon 2019? Of course, we have yourself as our keynote speaker. And it's absolutely wonderful to have you back this year. You're going to be talking about conspiracy theories, I believe. Correct. And I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'd say in no particular order, first we have uh, Alison Boswell, our spiritual medium, with Tamara Zeppa. They're going to be running the Friday night seance. Uh, that's always a huge hit. We should mention uh, Allison. Excuse me, Cayman. Allison yeah. will be on the show a little bit later this month, and we're going to do a little seance of our own. Oh, my. You are in for a treat, my friend. Uh, we have the cultist and paranormal investigator. And TV personality all the way from Saskatchewan, Matt Lay, also our own, a very own occult expert and left-hand path occultist, Helene M. Arts, uh, will be speaking. And uh, very excited to have Christian D. Cadeau as well joining us this year. It's his first time at Occulticon. Paranormal Contractors. We're so excited to have him this year. I don't know if everybody knows, but Christian has his PhD in forensic sciences and he goes in after the fact that uh, a crime scene has happened and he, he checks the place out for you. And he's, so, and he's seen some very strange things. Yes, I bet we have a lot of good stories to share. We also have the founders of the Wiccan Church of Canada, Tamara and Richard James, and they'll be presenting as well as performing the main ritual. It'll be like a high magic ceremonial ritual. We also have our uh, druid and hypnotherapist, Phil Naylor. Phil is really good at what he does. 
Uh, just to sum it up, in three sessions I did with him, he managed to help me quit smoking for the past four months. I haven't Fantastic. touched one since. Fantastic. We should mention the Paranormal Show with uh, Scott McClelland. Yes. Um, abs- in fact, that's that's coming up on my list here. Um, Scott McClelland is – I saved him till the end, I think. Yeah, he will be coming in for Saturday night to do – actually, I think he's there for the whole weekend to hang out with us. But uh, Saturday night, he'll be doing his amazing show called The Paranormal Show. This is apparently really amazing. He's really great at what he does. And uh, it's through his uh, his company, Carnival Diablo. Right. Scott and- is the is he's the proprietor of one of the last traveling circus side shows in North America and one of the oldest, too. And uh, I was just lucky to have come across him and, and source them out. And then to find out that you two were friends is, uh, is just made it perfect. So uh, we also have uh, the king of the macabre himself, the renowned historical relics collector, Steve Santini. He will be displaying his Paranormal Waters project. Um, he'll be featuring uh, actual pieces from the Titanic on site and you might even be able to handle them. It's a jam-packed and, uh, lineup, Cayman. You've got some tremendous, tremendous presenters. How do people get t- tickets, and how do they register? And if, th- if they want to stay all weekend, they can camp as well, right? The best way to get a hold of us or find us, one is on Facebook, capital occult, O-C-C-U-L-T, lowercase icon, I-C-O-N, occulticon. Also on Instagram at occulticon convention. Uh, our website is occulticon.com, and you can contact us at occulticon at gmail. The other thing they could do is they could just go to strangeplanet.ca and go to the events and live events and appearances page, and uh, you'll see occulticon there, and just click on that link, and that'll take you right there. That's right. Um, you can get day passes for any one of the days. You can stay for the whole weekend from. Friday, doors open at 5 till Sunday, doors close at 3. We'll take a quick time out when we come back. I want to talk to you about some of the strange paranormal goings-on over at your house. You happen to live in a haunted stone building that uh, uh, has a lot of strange stuff going on. We'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Cayman Mythwood from Occulticon is here, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.